You're listening to the Bats Left Throws Right podcast with your hosts, Jack Almer, Sal LaDuca, and Peter LaDuca. BLTR is the place where right meets left, brain meets body, and where we square up everything else in between. Come on a journey with us with the stories of athletes, coaches, scouts, and trainers who will inspire and motivate you to unleash your fullest potential. Follow us on Twitter at BLTR Podcast and on Facebook and Instagram at Bats Left Throws Right. Tune in through Spotify, Google Podcasts, or Apple Podcasts, and please be sure to rate, subscribe, and review. Welcome to Bats Left Throws Right. I'm your host, Jack Almer, along with the great father-son duo of Sal and Peter Loduca. Today, joining us is multiple-time World Series champion Skip Shoemaker, a lefty batter and righty thrower. Skip started his MLB career with the St. Louis Cardinals in 2005, then went over to the Dodgers in 2013 before wrapping up his career in 2015 with the Cincinnati Reds. He now serves as a coach with the San Diego Padres, who this season are looking to chase another ring to add to Skip's collection. So, Peter, I know you're in tune with a lot of what's going on in the MLB today. How do you think Skip's role as a previous champion is going to help this young upstart San Diego Padres team looking to capture one in the upcoming season? You know what? There, there are a lot of Hall of Famers out there, and they're phenomenal ballplayers. They have phenomenal talent, but, you know, you can't, you can't equate that to a World Series championship ring and World Series uh, experience. You know, you have to be there. You have to experience it. You have to see it. You have to feel it. You have to get that experience, you know. And for Skip to be a part of two World Series teams, to, to play in those in those games, to also watch. Because, you know, he was, also, he was more of like a utility guy. He was a second baseman. But to also watch it from, from the bench, you know, and to see everything happening during those those playoff runs, you just, um, there's no substitute for those kind of experiences. So, and Skip did talk a lot about how he's going to implement or the experiences or the lessons that he's learned during his time with the Cardinals. How is he going to be able to bring it to the Padres and implement it with their players and building a culture and uh, building a formula for success for long-term success with the San Diego Padres? And I think the Padres are, are going towards or gearing towards that direction. Yeah, absolutely. This Padres team, really exciting to watch. I'm excited to watch more of Slam Diego in the upcoming year. Got some great players there and former Red Sox broadcaster Dan Orsillo in the booth. So a lot of connections over in San Diego. Excited to watch what they do this season and skip. No stranger to the bright lights of the MLB season. He had back-to-back years in 2008-2009 where he played 153 games and hit a plus 300 average in both of those years. So a great addition to that San Diego locker room. And Sal, how do you think he's going to bring his expertise to taking these hitters to the next level? And you know what interests you about his playing career that he can then add to his coaching repertoire? Well, the first thing is he was a lefty hitter and a righty thrower. So that was very, that was very, I mean, that was one thing that caught my eye. But um, he had a more than respectable, uh, a more than respectable uh, career as a player. He's a hard worker. I can see he's a hard worker. And I think he brings a wealth of knowledge as a player in the game over many years uh, in the MLB. Secondly, I think he, as a mentor with uh, Larusa, he saw a managerial style that it looks like <clears throat> he tried to incorporate the 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 best of what he saw and now bring it bring it to the table 
as a manager, so an associate manager in this particular case with the San Diego Padres. So yeah, for sure. He's, uh, you know, he's a no, I can see he's a no nonsense guy. He knows he's got a task to do and he is, he is competing with time and resources to do those tasks. And uh, he's, he's just, you can see he's a type of guy who's going to determine how efficient can he make his time with the, with the greatest outcome and the greatest effect. So I think in the future, this guy, he's going to be a a full manager of a team. And I think he's going to be qualified more than qualified to do that in the best way possible. So just to add to that, as far as coaching is concerned, the one thing that we notice a lot in professional sports and, and it happens in baseball is that sometimes when it comes to coaching hires, it can be a revolving door, right? A player, he goes right into uh, a coach, a coaching uh, position at the major league level. And the one thing that I like about Skip's resume is that before he got to being an associate head coach, he was, he was a first base coach. He got to know the players and uh, that's very important. You know, a lot of people, they go straight into the job at the major league level. And sometimes they are not prepared. You know, they're not prepared for certain situations or they're not prepared as far as relationships with the players. And I think in the long run, it's going to prove beneficial to skip. Like, you know, like you said, Sal, um, it, when it comes to that time that maybe one day he'll be the, the head manager of a, of a ball club. Definitely looking forward to following the career of Skip as a manager as he continues to climb the ranks. That next rung on the ladder is going to be attaining a full-time manager spot. So really excited to get more into the San Diego Padres, Skip's career with him, and Toxin Baseball. So without further ado, here's Skip Shoemaker. So how is this spring training process been like for you and what are some of the differences that you've encountered with the different restrictions we've been in place? I mean, everything's different than it was a couple of years ago. Um, how has it been more challenging uh, for you guys? Yeah, so it's been uh, it's been different. I mean, we have contact tracing uh, bands that we have to wear. Um, we're at the field. So if you are around someone with COVID for 15 total minutes in a 24-hour period, so I'm sitting at lunch with somebody and they have COVID because I was sitting next to somebody at lunch, um, whether I had symptoms or not, I am down now for seven to 10 days. Um, Yeah. So that can really affect a team. Um, If you know, if you are sitting, you know, at a lunch table outside outdoors with this thing on and say like our dudes are out there, right? Like Paddock Snell, Musgrove, whoever, and they're now down for 10 days. uh, You know, we put you in, a predicament to say the least. So um, you got that, you got, you know, you're in a hot tub, you have to wear a mask. It's just, you're running on a treadmill, you have to wear a mask. So it's been challenging. That's for sure. But you know what? Everybody has to go through it. Been able to eat outdoors in Arizona or we were just finally allowed to eat outdoors in Arizona on the fourth. That's been challenging um, because the first thing that you do when you haven't seen somebody in four or five months is you go grab a drink with them or you go have, and you can't do that stuff anymore. So it's been tough. So Skip, with respect to the vaccines now, what's controlling giving vaccines to the players and the staff? Is it in the state that you're in? Like if you're right now in, in spring training in Arizona, do you have to adhere to like Arizona's law may be, well, you know, the first people that can get the vaccine are the elderly or, 
or, you know, frontline workers. Is there anything right now in the MLB that's in the works to try and get players and staff vaccinated? But, you know, is there a hierarchy that needs to be complied with? What's the deal with the vaccines? Yeah, we're, uh, you know, my parents just got them in California. They're over 65 and we're just kind of on that list of kind of the healthy 40 year old. There are some coaches on our staff that are kind of in that 65 and over mark that, you know, we're able to get them, but, you know, we're just kind of like everyone else. There's no special treatment as far as that's concerned. And, you know, honestly, there shouldn't be just because we play a sport doesn't mean we should be ahead of the line. Uh, Having said that, when we go to Texas, they have 40,000 fans, they just said, uh, full capacity. That makes no difference. Uh, our protocols, it doesn't do anything f- different for us. We are going to be as strict as possible as far as like in the hotels, you know, seeing family, it, all that stuff is the same. It doesn't matter where we go. Understood. So, Skip, I, I want to get a little deeper now. And so your your birthday falls in that Aquarius. You're an Aquarius, right? Think so. <laughs> yeah. So I want to read to you what in a, an Aquarius sign, the personality traits of an Aquarius sign. And I'd like to see h- how much of that may be you. And okay. so I didn't know we were doing astrology today. <laughs> yeah, we were doing astrology. <laughs> I didn't get the lesson plan. Um, it, it's a, it's a, it's a way to get into his early years as a player. So, they say that what's the personality of an Aquarius? So every Aquarian is a rebel at heart. These air signs despise authority and anything that re- represents conventionality. Free-spirited and eccentric, they can often be identified by their offbeat fashion sensibilities, unusual hobbies, and nonconformist attitude. Does that describe... You skip. <laughs> and that would be the opposite of. Uh, oh man! <laughs> forward is who I am not. I wear a hat and one of these jackets or a t-shirt. Hey, <laughs> uh, defy authority. I wouldn't be able to uh, play under Tony Larusa for as long as I did. So I think all right. of that uh, incorrect. Whoever wrote that is way off. Okay, so but would you say that as a water sign? You're probably fluid in that you can easily adapt to ever-changing situations, so to speak. Would that be correct? Yeah, I mean, you have to. I mean, I think, you know, part of the game, part of my position now coaching is is managing personalities. There's not one way to coach. You have If you have one way to coach, you'll be in and out of here and guys won't respect you. So you're trying to find ways to improve players and get the best version out of that player every single day. How do you do that? How do you find the motivation? So you're adapting every single day of trying to, you know, dangle that carrot um, in front of, you know, some superstars to try to get the best version of that guy every single day. So, yeah, I think adaptability. Sure. I mean, I think, you know, everything changes and, you know, the game of baseball changes. I mean, you guys can see it um, as fans right in front of you um, with this, you know, the, all the analysts and saber metrics and everything else. It's so you have to adapt or you're done. You talk about, dangling that carrot and trying to get the best out of your players. How has the relationship between managers and players changed from when you were playing to now? Is it a little bit more open? Is there more communication between you and your guys? Yeah, I think so. I I think, um, you know, when I first came up, you know, Tony 
from the other side probably looks like, you know, um, real hard, tough, like mean. And like, he's just gonna, you know, he's horrible to his players and that couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, he was uh, a player's manager. If you're on his team, uh, he's doing everything he can again, like I said before, to get the best version out of you every single day and putting you in a really good spot to succeed. And that's kind of what I took uh, from Tony. And, you know, as a, as a coach now, um, I think it's a different culture. There's no doubt about it from, you know, when I was, when I came up in 2005 to now 2021, wherever we are, it's just different. I mean, my kids are different. And um, so I, I don't know how much different, I'm not saying like we coddle because we definitely don't coddle, but I think there's, you just have to identify who needs, you know, a punch in the face and who needs that arm around, you know, their, their shoulders. And um, I think that's just part of coaching. And it's always has been. I'm glad, I'm glad you mentioned that because, you know, I'm, I'm a youth baseball coach myself and, you know, me, me, me and my father versus son. So we come from like a tough, you know, hard nosed background. And the way I grew up, <laughs> the way I grew up, you can't, you can't treat kids or, or players like that now. So for me as a coach, I have to learn how to, you know, like you said, manage different personalities. You can't just, you know, shove one concept or one philosophy down everybody's throats. You know, unfortunately nowadays you kind of have to manage each, each person uh, separately in a sense, you know, so it's, it's definitely changed from 2005 to 2021 so I definitely relate and agree with that point yeah no it's 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 the truth and you know I'm sorry that you're a youth coach but I was a my son is 13 and I coached him and I at probably a few weeks in I didn't allow parents to come to my practice anymore so I had enough so it's just the kids and it's never the kids that are a problem it's usually the, just the, the parents, parents. That are, <laughs> exactly. so yeah percent all the time so um, they weren't allowed they were allowed to drop off and pick up and that was it um, but having said that, uh, there's no magic pill to this thing, right? Like the one non-negotiable to if the kid really wants to be successful, if it's a youth, if it's a high school kid or a college and professional, it's just work. It just takes work. Like people have talent, but there's just no magic pill. So if the kid wants it, then how do you get, how do you push them to get them to the next level? And again, some kids need the constant, like, affirm like you are so great. You're the best. You're the best. You're the best. Some kids need to hear that, like, no, you're not the greatest. How are you going to be, you know, that kid right there is better than you. Do you want it or not? So, like, you just have to figure out and, and navigate carefully, uh, especially at the youth. But you know what? You're doing it up here, too. So that brings us to another interesting question, because you have been quoted as saying in an article that when you get to the major leagues, this is not about development anymore. This is about winning, winning games, right? And so once a player gets to the major league, it's not to say that they don't develop anymore. It's just that what you're saying is, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, you now have to take the responsibility for your own development. And if you feel like you need help, you're going to have to ask for it. You're going to have to experiment on your own. You're going to have to, you know, you have to take the responsibility. So if you have a player who's struggling at the plate, right? Would a hitting coach wait until the player goes to the hitting coach and says, you know, I, I don't know what I'm doing wrong. I tried everything. Or does the pit, does a hitting coach go to the player and say, you know, I've been watching you, your last few at bats. I think you're doing this. 
how does that work, Skip? And can you also just expand a little bit more on what you mean when you say, we're not here to develop, we're here to win games? Yeah, so uh, I, th- I think uh, it might have been taken out a little bit of con- out of context, context. because it- you just never, you never stop learning or developing. I, we always, I mean, I always grew up feeling that being comfortable is death, right? You want to be able to feel uncomfortable at something in order to have that growth mindset and keep growing. So, but at the major league level, in my opinion, the major league level, the difference between the major league level and the minor league levels, the major league levels and know-how league, the minor league level is the figured out league. We are not figuring it out anymore at the major league level. We are here to win. That is the only thing we're trying to do. I'm not trying to figure out anymore on how to feel a ground ball, how to hit. Now, can we fine tune every single day? Absolutely. Are we working to get you better every single day? Yes. So that is the developing for sure. It's also a game of adjustments. So you can't just do the same thing over and over again, or you will be in and out of this league in a heartbeat. Right. Adjusting to you. And then it's a chess match. You're going back and forth, back and forth to your hitting question. You have to watch how the player is reacting. So during the game, you are not following him and saying, hey, this is how you should do it. This is what I'm seeing. If the player comes up to you and asks, then yes, you, you deliver a message and you are prepared to deliver a message. You're never caught off guard if you're a coach. Now, before the game or after the game, then you can sit down, dissect some video, say, hey, this is what I'm seeing. This is what I'm thinking about. Maybe we come into work tomorrow and we work on this particular drill, whatever it is. But to say that like we are stopping the teaching part of it or stopping, that is, that's not right. Uh, My point is like, I'm not going to fully develop a player without the proper coaching they have in the minor leagues before they get to the big leagues. I think the minor leagues are extremely important. I was very lucky to have the the best coaches in the world uh, in the St. Louis Cardinals organization. So when I got up, I knew what Tony was expecting. And Tony La Russa is expecting to win. Can you help me win tonight's game? If that is the no, then see in AAA. And until you're ready to help me win, you know, we'll find someone else. Right. So, I mean, that's a harsh, in a certain extent, it's a harsh, it's a harsh concept for people to, you know, because you say, listen, we we're always learning till the day we die. Right. And actually, if, if at any point in your life, you think like, you know, it all, that's your downfall because nobody knows it all, but it just seems is that the onus now, you know, at the major league level, it's another, it's a different thing. It's about, you're here to, to contribute. And if you can contribute, you better find a way to contribute and you better find it quickly because we're not going to give you that much time to figure it out at this at this level. Yeah, there's jobs in the line. I mean, if a manager is winning 50 games, guess what? He probably doesn't have a job the following year. So at some point, you have to figure out, are these guys that are with you? Now, there's certain organizations that are in a rebuild mode, and I'm not saying it's access, uh, acceptable, but winning should be the, the mindset when you enter the door. It doesn't matter where you are. Uh, in your in, at the organization, if you're starting to rebuild, you're having some minor leaguers come up that might be a little too early, or you have some one year veteran guys that come in that are trying to trade at the deadline to get some more prospects, whatever it is, you're not, you're never should go into a, a game or enter our building, at least if I'm a coach, uh, feeling that you're not trying to win tonight. 
And so what little things go into, you know, winning tonight? What, where does it start? And what do you preach to your guys, you know, do these things every day uh, in order to come to work in the mindset that you expect as a coach? Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, it starts in spring uh, before spring training in the off season to get your body, you know, as big and fast, as strong as you can, as humanly possible. And then once you enter spring, there's, you know, conversations on how we can get you better, whether it's the pitching side, the side, the defensive side. And then once we break camp, um, and get all the work in, then it's the scouting stuff. So we know the front office is aligned with the the coaching staff and we are delivering what the player needs, kind of dummy it down of like, okay, you're facing uh, Blake Snell tonight. This is what he's going to throw to you. We think um, this is where um, your weaknesses are. This is where your strengths are. Let's stick to your strengths, that type of thing. We go over, you know, I'm at the field at 1130 on a seven o'clock day uh, game night game. So I am prepping until Eric Hosmer comes in at two o'clock and he is expecting us to deliver. How am I get, getting, uh, where am I positioning uh, Fernando Tatis tonight? Does he bunt? Does he run? Where, what's the bullpen look like? And how am I going to be able to hit Blake Snell? And then by the way, I'm not feeling great with the outside pitch, hypothetically, how can we get better? So there's a lot that goes into it you know, before kind of prepping um, so we can deliver what the player needs to give him the best chance tonight. What are qualities you look for in players that when it comes time to, you have two guys on the bubble, you're going to stand on the table for one guy over another? Yeah. I mean, so you look at guys all the time that are released that go into another organization and they're superstars like Justin Turner. Crazy. Doesn't that drive you that crazy? Yeah, I mean Justin Turner was, you know, a nice player for the Mets, but a utility kind of right. guy. Now he's just now he's an, a perennial All Star. Well, uh, I think that's the Mets curse because all the guys who, who, who played shitty uh, while they were in the Mets, they go to another team, and all of a sudden they become superstars. <laughs> yeah, but, but my point is that that, that happens everywhere. Right. My right. point. Most likely in that Mets meeting, whenever it was, someone was pounding the table on Justin Turner and it just didn't work out. There's also guys that pounded the table on guys that end up making the team that end up being terrible. So we really don't know. But if there's a it's nice to have coaches in front offices and we have it here um, that are pounding the table because they have belief in their players. And you'd rather have that than like, oh, my gosh, these guys are terrible. What am I doing here? So, Skip, you know, this whole era of algorithms and data and predictability and probability, I think we're in this moment, and correct me if I'm wrong, where there's a little bit of a battle going on. There's the battle of the data and the numbers, and there's still the old school that is like, you know, give me all the numbers you want, but... I've been doing this for 30, 40 years. I know it when I see it. I have my gut instinct. And so is there a middle ground where where people need to be? The data is important. I'm not saying it's not important. But is there sometimes an overemphasis on the data? And, you know, I know this is a game of predictability. And a lot of times players over time, they become very predictable because we know from spray charts and uh, on average, what we think they're going to do, right? Because humans are sometimes very robotic, more robotic than robots, actually. And because of the nature of the way they practice 
and and their performance on the field. You know, we're friends with with Jack Howell, and Jack would always say to me, Sal, you know, at the end of the day, like I don't get really too crazy if a player is like, you know, he's you know he's you know he's not doing well at the plate, you know, he's he's one for five or whatever, because I know that on average in his lifetime he's always going to fall within a certain area. Right. And so sometimes I don't get overly excited if he's, you know, he's missing a few on, on, on some at bats. How do you reconcile this skip? How do you reconcile the new world with the old guard that is a little bit sometimes resistant? Yeah, no, I, first of all, the sabermetrics, the analytics are a tool. And we talked about growth mindset before if you're not willing to use this information to your advantage, then you'll get lost. I mean, you're done because there are very smart teams that use this stuff to their advantage. And the, the team that the teams that use it really well are, you know, I feel like we are uh, the Los Angeles Dodgers who won the world series are very good at it, but it's a tool. It's not the end all. And so if you can use it and you can figure out the players that, you know, can absorb certain information, some want more, some want less. It's not like for everybody, then it's just a useful tool. There's some really good information out there. But to your point earlier, you have to trust your gut, right? And so Tony used to tell me, if you end up managing one day, trust your gut, don't make decisions to cover your butt. So if there is a gut feeling and you have a reason behind it, then you go for it. But it's not like... Baseball is not just this, here you go, if you just do this, you'll win a game. Like, things happen throughout the game that it just changes. Guys might not feel good, but guys might look terrible, on the, uh, you know, coming from the bullpen, and you're like, right away, you see, this ain't going to work. Like, get somebody hot. No matter, so you have a plan going into a game, but it doesn't always work out that way. So, but this, the shifting and all that stuff, to me, um, if you don't like the shifting, then how do you beat the shift? And right. so the player, it's like, oh, they're shifting. It's what bunt, like figure out how to manip- manipulate the barrel and hit it the other way. Anyway, I just think that th- there's, there's tools that you can use. And for us coaches, it's getting the stuff that the useful information, identifying what can really help us help win a game, deliver it to the players who can, who can absorb it correctly. And then let's go. But it's not, it's not one way or the highway. It's not just analytics. It's not just the old school. The really good teams have a combination of both. both. And, you yeah. know, a, a lot of people think gut, when you talk about your gut or your instinct, people sort of tend to lump that into, well, that's your emotional side. Well, I don't think so because if you have a gut instinct, Skip, that's coming from your experience that's coming from the data from your experience. It's coming from the data about the, the individual player and what he's been doing and your, 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 the visual data that you're collecting as you see this guy every day, his personality, what's he feeling about today? These guys could have had an issue at home that's going to affect their game today. You don't know. I mean, and, and that brings me to the next point about I don't know that people understand the enormity of a manager's job, you have to, you have to worry about ownership. You have to worry about producing. You have to manage personalities. You have to manage skill abilities. You have to manage where people go in lineups. Where I mean, 
it's just a lot of shit that you've got to manage and try to keep yourself sane. And I don't know that that's always something you can teach. I think part of that is leadership qualities that I think maybe sometimes you're just, you're born with and that you hone, hone in better as, as your life takes you with more experience. I mean, does that make sense, Skip? It does yeah. sound like he does sound like a leader, so that's that's good. He does sound he's very <laughs> he articulate. He's he's right. There's there's not a, a pause or anything. He's not skipping the beat. So he does sound like a leader, Papa. So you are talking about Skip right there. <laughs> well, uh, I just think having a really good support staff around you, experience helps, and having a coaching staff that you can trust and owns their area really helps this thing go. If, if I'm always micromanaging, and I'm not the manager here, but if, if I was and I was micromanaging, first of all, the coaches don't want that. The players don't want to see it, and they don't want that. That means they know the manager doesn't trust the coach. And then that puts more on the manager's plate. So you have to identify the coaching staffs that you really, truly trust, because at the end of the day, are they helping you win again? And then if they don't, then your job personally, selfishly is also on the line. So it's a very, I don't know if hire is a good word, but you have, or even a word, but you have to be a good hirer. Uh, you have to hire the right way um, because you don't want this carousel of coaches um, every single year. You want some stability uh, when you are, when you have a coaching staff because players like that and they get to know you and build relationships and, and know that you can trust them. You know, we're, we're talking about the right way to run a team. Over the course of your baseball career, did you ever play for a coach where you thought to yourself, man, if I was running it, I would do this entirely differently? Sure. I'm not going to tell you who that is. <laughs> but, That's fair. It's just, uh, just us. It's just us, Skip. Yeah, no, of course. And, um, but, you know, the, there's going to be second guessing no matter what you do, right? Like Tony La Russa is a Hall of Famer. And he was fired by the White Sox. And he was, uh, I'm sure people second-guessed him all the time when he was putting, uh, you know, Dennis Eckersley as a closer. Like, what is there's, what are you talking about? Like, again, he was doing making decisions. Uh, the pitcher is batting eighth. Um, and, you know, I'm batting ninth. There's just certain things that there's a rhyme and reason for him doing stuff. And he's not, he's trusting his gut on, on things and not covering his butt. And so... I think there's there's managers who um, you definitely don't want to be labeled as like a puppet um, where it's just like everything's just coming down and you just got to deliver the president's message or whatever. Um, that's definitely what you don't want to become. So, but I haven't, I haven't had the puppet manager, but I've had managers who are like, man, if, if I could do something, if it was my job one day, uh, I would do it differently in, in this respect. And mainly it's just, um, you know, relationships with players, you know, just really creating a trusting relationship with players. So Skip, that requires, so, you know, everything in life, and I, I, I think you'll agree, everything in life sometimes, if you want to, you have to sometimes go out on that limb. And so sometimes in order to achieve certain things that no one else is achieving, you have to go out on a limb and you have to risk you have to take risks sometimes. Now, those are sometimes calculated risks. I'm not talking about negligent risks taking. I'm talking about calculated risk, but that requires a sense of, of vulnerability on that person's part. And vulnerability doesn't mean weakness. It means, 
It means some sense of confidence in saying, listen, I, I think I think I'm going to take a risk on something here or good or bad. I, I, I feel very, very strongly about taking a certain path or doing something that's maybe a little bit off the beaten path. And so as a player, because I want to get back to your time as a player, did you take risks as a player sometimes to do things that were sometimes unconventional? And does that translate over? And, and I know you're, you're still your associate manager, but are, are you more apt to take certain risks if you feel very passionate about, about something that may go either way? And something like Tony LaRusso said, you know, if you're always worried about covering your ass, then you're going to be just like everybody else. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, there's a few layers to that. So I think as far as taking risks, I was moved from out as a player. I was moved from outfield to infield, uh, never played second base in my entire career. I'm talking youth, high school, never. college, minor leagues, never. And I wow. get a phone call in 2008 offseason, entering the 2009 season uh, in January saying, hey, we're going to be releasing Adam Kennedy, who was one of my good buddies. We think you can play second base. This will open up positions for like, you know, Ankiel and Ryan Ludwig and uh, Chris Duncan at the time. And we want your bat. Do you think you can play second base? And what are you going to, of course, I'm going to say, yes, I try, but like this. Of course, I've always played second base. Yeah. Uh, but that's a calculated risk, right? Because Tony just trusted, like, he's going to put in the work and we're going to find out. He's going to put in the work. He's going to, he's all in. And if it works, great. If it doesn't, we can just put them back in the outfield and we'll figure it out. But um, so that's that's a risk that I was willing to take for my career. But if it backfired, I got to tell you, you know, there's some really good outfielders um, that are now taking my position. And if I don't succeed at second base, now I'm on the bench now. Right. right? You might not be able to get that position again. Right. So, but I was willing to do it because I, I felt like not only would it help me in my career, but if Tony LaRusso believes that I can do this, why shouldn't I believe I can do it? And so that was, that's the power of a manager in, in the influence he can have on, on a young, you know, player. And I mean, I wasn't young, I was 29 years old, but um, that's, that's kind of the, I guess the risks that I was willing to take, but it just goes back to now as a coach, the risk, if you're prepared, it doesn't feel as risky anymore. Right? So you take your shots if you're prepared. It's just like if you have a pop quiz and you're not prepared, you're like, oh, my gosh, like, what the heck? I'm scrambling. Right. But and I again, I was on the bench a lot with Tony LaRusso. I watched him and I watched his game plan throughout my career and nothing came up where he was surprised by nothing. He was never surprised during a game. And so his risk was calculated. And if it didn't work out, it didn't work out. Now, if Arthur Rhodes gave up a home run, Arthur Rhodes gave a home run. But he had his reason he was prepared. Was it a risk? Yeah. Was he going to be second guessed in the media? Probably. That's just part of the job. But if, if you feel good about it and you're prepared, then yes, go for so it. What you're saying is you need to be prepared to adapt. And so if you say anything can happen in the game, how do we now teach? How do we foster adaptability so that, if you know, so you you went into a, a situation of coming from the outfield to second base. 
And so even though you would have preferred to stay in the outfield, because that was comfortable for you, you felt confident, you've been doing it for so long, you could do that in your sleep, right? Eyes closed, hands behind your back, tied, you could still make the play, right? And so part of that being comfortable with being uncomfortable is how we learn, is how we learn and how we move forward as, as players, as individuals, as humans, So again, as you said, the the risk was calculated, but being prepared means also being prepared to be adaptive, correct? Sure, absolutely. So uh, since you you, you mentioned, let's maybe go into the player standpoint, I feel like, you know, we've been talking a lot about other people. I want to talk a little bit about Skip. Yeah, let's talk about Skip. Let's talk about Skip, man. And, you know, this is the, the podcast is called Bats Left, Throws Right. So has anybody ever asked you before, how did you become a lefty righty? Yeah, uh, it just happened to be my dad was on one side of the tee putting balls on. I didn't want to be on that side of the tee. So he just told me it that way. And that's kind of how it started. My dad was a football first, baseball like fourth kind of guy. Um, wow. <laughs> even my family, um, my mom's side was very baseball heavy. My dad, my mom's brother-in-law or my mom's brother was a you know high school. Anyway, a lot of, lot of baseball on my side of the family, on my mom's side. My dad um, was a coach, coached my son or coached me growing up, but was a football first, still is, by the way. And, and uh, so – it was just by chance that, you know, I would throw play catch. He had a left glove, you know, left-handed glove or glove on the left hand. So that's what I did. And then when he's putting the ball on the tee, I was just on the left-handed batter's box and kind of just went from there. And my son, uh, who's 13, throws right, bats left also. That's amazing. I'd have been forced a little bit to be on the left <laughs> side. Uh, just a little bit, right. <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, so now it's, uh, it's kind of cool watching him. Uh, so are you right hand, uh, Skip, are you right hand dominant? Do you do anything else on the left besides swing a bat? Nothing. Nothing. Wow. So see now Skip is typical. So part of what we, you know, this podcast is about the area of neuroplasticity, right? Oh How God! We, oh God! No, so mm-hmm. listen. This is not neuro. I'm not a neuroscientist. It's the full school lesson here. You got astrology, not science. <laughs> now, how do we foster opening up the brain, so to speak? And if you take a look at all of the highest level athletes, whether it's tennis, whether it's golf, whether it's basketball, whether it's baseball, so you have guys like Ichiro Suzuki, right? born dominant right, very fast as a kid. The father wants him to hit left so he can be closer to first base, right? LeBron James says, I was born dominant left-handed, but all my idols growing up were right-handed. So I wanted to be like them. So I taught myself to, you know, shoot with my right. And then you have Rafael Nadal, born right-handed, can't do anything taught as a youngster to play with his left. He can only play tennis left. He can't do anything else. And Phil Mickelson, born right-handed, and he's learning golf from his father, who's a right-handed golfer. And so he's, he's facing his dad and almost to mimic his swing, he swings left. So I, I think what's happening is, is, is that when you are working that non-dominant side, as a youngster or at any stage in life, you're sort of like opening up the pathways on the opposite side. 
Now I'm like, I'm fascinated. My son, Peter is a lefty righty as well. And I think that there's some players are more highly ambidextrous and they'll say, well, you know, when I started playing, I felt more comfortable hitting left, but I felt more comfortable throwing right. Um, you know, Drew Brees and Tom Brady, they were baseball players in high school. They were both lefty righty guys. And so again, it's just a, it's a, it's an interesting area. And I always would say to people, if I had my way, first of all, I'd hire only lefty-righty guys or righty-lefty guys. But for hitters, I'd have everybody switch hitting batting practice in the cage, but they would have to stick to their dominant side in the plate. Now, I I just want to go to one extra thing with you, and that is regarding your dominant eye. So from your career, it seems as though you had issues hitting off of lefty pitchers. So I don't know if you know what your dominant eye is, but if I'm going to take a shot, uh, an educated guest, I would probably say that you are left eye dominant and probably were not able to see those lefty pitchers as well because your right eye was not the dominant. I don't. Do you know what eye is dominant? Yeah, my, my left eye is dominant, but you know I I think um, it's so specialized the pitching where guys are getting paid millions of dollars to get one left-handed hitter out. So I think it's, you. yes, I had trouble with lefties. I would say that most left-handed hitters have trouble hitting left-handed pitchers in general as as a whole. I mean, there are guys that are really good at it, but I would say in general, there's that lefty relief pitcher for a reason, right? It's that funky specialist. Um, I get what you're saying. Um, and it makes sense to me. Didn't really ever think about it, about it in that, uh, in that way. But I also think that like, there's some real funk lefties. You don't see a funky righty too often, right? It's like the funky, weird lefty, you know, there's like sidearm and, you know, doing kind of crazy stuff. And you know, like Randy Choate and, you know, some of these guys that were paid a lot of money to get one guy out. So, so let me just ask you a question then in the major leagues or in the minors, is the question for players about like what's your dominant eye? Is that something part of a player's chart or makeup that goes into it? Or like even sometimes you have, I, I ask this question because you like, you're lumped as I'm a lefty hitter, a righty hitter, a switch hitter, a lefty pitcher, a righty pitcher. Well, there's a dynamic that's going on with the lefty righty guys that no one's, no one's, maybe fully understanding or the righty lefty guys. So I don't know, you know, and, and, and with respect to eye dominance, I don't know if there's enough science that's out there that has studied it. I don't think so. But did anyone ever ask you as you're getting into the collegiate and the minor leagues and the major leagues, did anyone ask you like, how did you become a lefty righty? Did anyone ask you? No, it, but you know, to the, to your the question really on the has anybody asked about the dominant eye and that type of thing? The there's a reason why people have said for years to put your chin on your shoulder type thing, so two eyes are facing right. the pitcher. Very rarely do you see mo, too many Movons that are kind of like tilted underneath the ball. Um, so it's very you know if you remember like Big Mac and you know some of these you know really good guys they're like literally like facing 
the pitcher to make sure both eyes are on top of them. Um, so there's a, there's a, we, we do have eye doctors that do like, we have eye training here with the, you know, um, that, that a lot of guys are into, um, but we don't know, at least I don't, you know, maybe our trainers do exactly what eyes dominate on each player. So I just have one more question on that. So you are on the Cincinnati Reds for the 2014-2015 season? Correct. So after you, because you're my first favorite lefty-righty, my second favorite lefty-righty guy is Joey Votto. And I have two questions about Joey Votto. Number one, <laughs> during I, – I, and I, maybe you know what I'm going to ask you. At some point in Joey Votto's career – I remember him saying in an interview that he was not happy, uh, you know, the way he hit off of lefty pitchers. He was, you know, he was struggling with lefty pitchers. And then all of a sudden, I don't know what he was doing, but there were some seasons where his batting average against lefties just went through the roof, right? And so during that period that you were there, I saw, you know, I don't know if it if it has any statistical meaning because obviously the amount of bats that you got off of lefty pitchers was not a lot. But I did notice in 2014 and 2015, your batting average started to climb a little bit more against left-handed pitchers. And I'm just wondering, was there anything that that you may have asked Joey Votto what he was doing in order to help him hit better off of lefties or yeah. I, I don't so, know if I'm making a something that doesn't even exist. Yeah. No, I mean, you always, as a player are trying to find out what makes the elite guys elite, right? Joey Votto is the 1%. He's the MVP of the league. There's only so many of those a year, right? So Joey Votto, what he did, it was, it was work. He was relentless in the work. So Joey Votto would end up breaking balls in between innings every single game. Now wrap your mind around that for a second. 160 wow. games. My God. Every so the, the time that he wasn't like leading off an inning or on deck or whatever is he was hitting a left-handed curveball and allowed him to just adjust and stay back. And that was for, you know, he was hurt the first year I was there. And see, that would be uh 14. And then in 15 is when he had that MVP kind of caliber season again, which everybody was expecting Joey. And that's when I watched him, you know, religiously to see like what made him tick. And, you know, I was texting Joey Votto today uh, because he has, you know, diagnosed with, you know, COVID and that kind of thing to, um, oh, wow. but, um, but he's, uh, he, he, you talk about growth mindset and all that stuff. Of course I asked Joey, you know, what his mindset is on lefties and, you know, how does he, he's always trying to find a way to get better. And, um, you know, he's the guy that, you know, and I respect this the most is he doesn't want the contract to look bad. So he is doing everything he can to make sure that this contract makes it look like you guys got a deal. And, um, and so, right. he is, so he is, he's relentless again, but the, just to show you what he does because of, you know, the, the lefty and it allows him to stay back on righties. There's different reasons behind it, but you know, for me, it's like, well, he probably took 200 swings a day against a left-handed breaking ball most likely you're going to get better. So let me ask you one question, one more question on that. So I, there's no, I don't have to know Joey Votto to, to understand that he takes his job extremely seriously and he's 
probably one of the most responsible players. It doesn't matter how much, how many millions he's got on a contract. He, he's concerned about, about being the very best that he could be. So now what I really like about him is he's obsessed. He's obsessed with the strike zone, right? He, and, and so it, it creates sort of like this two levels of, of thought, right? So I'm assuming that in the past, I don't know if his, his, his approach is changing, but if that ball was just outside the strike zone, he's not going to fucking hit it, right? He's going to take the fucking walk. I don't care. He doesn't care. Well, I don't know if he doesn't care, but if there's a guy on third base, right, and, and someone else is on bat, it's like if it's close enough and I think I could get a hit, I'm going to try and get that, that, that guy on base. And so, you know, I, I respect him so much because he seems to be concerned about the art the art of hitting, which may have, I don't know, there may be some loss of the art of hitting in that respect. So I don't know, where did you lie on that spectrum? Because Joey Votto seems to be like, I want to be proficient anywhere in the strike zone so that he becomes unpredictable. And isn't that, isn't that the idea? Because the more predictable you are as a hitter or the more predictable you are as a pitcher, the more vulnerable you can be. Yeah, Joey, um, and this is the truth, there's nothing harder to do in the game than reach first base, right? So he celebrates getting on first base and trusts his teammates behind him that they'll do their job. I did my job. You do your job. Yeah, of course. Joey and I had arguments about all the time, like guy on third base, like I want you to drive him in. I don't want the guy behind you to drive him in. I want Joey Votto, the MVP, to drive him in. Like, what are you doing? Like I saw Albert do it for 10 straight years. 100 RBIs every single year. And then he kind of broke it down to me of like, you know, if everybody is relentless in the strike zone throughout a course of 162, our whole team will be that much better because we are just, we're killing the strike zone and we're taking our walks and we're getting in that bullpen early. And so he had this whole thing about it. And also he's, he's correct. Like, He's like, you know, even though, you know, I probably could get a sack fly right there, what is what is better? It's always turning over the lineup, right? As many times you turn over the lineup, the more runs you're going to score. Now, of course, would I have liked to have been Joey Votto and have his eye? Absolutely. Can I decide if a 96-mile-an-hour sinker is a ball out of the hand like he can right <laughs> away? I just I can't. I'm not like him, but I tried. I tried my hardest. I mean, I wanted to get on base in front of Albert my whole career. I just didn't have that unique ability. He's got it. He's as good as anybody. I don't know if it's a selfish or a selfless attitude because I, I don't well, know. It's both. hard. Yeah, right? it's both. It's both. I mean, you, you want to get on base. You you have to be selfish as a hitter. I mean, you're trying to get on base, but getting on base is a, it's selfless too because you're helping that guy. You know, it's it's <laughs> all. I mean, it, it's the same thing to me. And I, I just think Joey's a very special, unique hitter that to me is a Hall of Famer, dominated the area at the no era. Question. And, and it's, uh, you know, a lot of guys are kind of trying to mold themselves because of what, you know, Joey Votto has done with his on-base percentage. And when he puts a ball in play, it's usually a slug, right? And so everyone talks about on-base plus slug is what gets paid, right? Well, he was doing that not to get, I mean, that was before like the sabermetrics really were a thing, but that's what his, that's how advanced he was early on. 
while we're talking about lessons you learned from your playing days, you won a World Series with the Cardinals in 2011. How do you take the experience of that championship run and apply it to your work now as a coach with the San Diego Padres, a team that certainly has expectations of being in the World Series conversation this year? Yeah, I was fortunate to be in an organization that expected to win every single year. That was the expectation. It was World Series or bust. Uh, luckily, I was there in 06 also, uh, in 06 and 11, and won you know, the, the two World Series and watching the, the great guys do it, watching the coaching staffs do it. I, I know what winning looks like, and I know what a winning player, how they act, um, how they respond when it's not going their way. And I, I understand you know, trying to put guys in really good positions to succeed. Now, does that always work out? Of course not. But we're in a position now where we have, you know, really good staff. We have Larry Rothschild, who's been around for, you know, 40 years as the pitching coach who understands winning in the New York uh, Yankee system. Jace Tingler is our manager, who's uh, very smart and bright and has a ton of energy and great ideas. Uh, but he's, but Jace surrounded himself with guys that have really good experience and he was smart. Bobby Dickerson, who's been around Manny's first coach in Baltimore. So we understand what winning looks like and we're trying to build that culture to where like this, this is World Series or it's a horrible offseason. That's it. They're just one team that makes it. And, you know, having some, we have some really like our GM is a rock star, right? He just like made all like these trades were unbelievable at the trade deadline. He continued killing it in the offseason and he put us in a really good position to win. win. Now we'll see what happens. And, you know, injuries can happen and that whole thing, you never know. But he's giving, he's showing our clubhouse, hey, I'm in it with you. The ownership is showing the city and the clubhouse. I'm in it with you. Let's go. And there's no better feeling as a player or a coach uh, to have that. And St. Louis had that, you know, every single year I was there. So what just- do you tell your guys about, you know, what the experience is like to finally have all that work culminate to winning a World Series, have your season end like that? Yeah, I mean, there's, you can, you know, I I can't think of a better situation than grinding out every single day, being away from your family, sacrificing, especially a year like this year with the pandemic and and everything else that's thrown on top of us. That sacrifice is, it's insane how much we have to sacrifice, right? Like if my, if my wife wants to come to Arizona and visit me, she has to be in a hotel for two days, quarantine. Right, before. And to come see me, right? So, like the sacrifices that we're making, are, they're they need to happen. I get it because you don't want to give someone, you know, on your staff, or whatever. But my point is, if you are winning a World Series at the end of the year this year, it means that you are all in. You did everything you could for your teammates and your staff and the city and the ownership and your family. It's, it would be the the highlight of of anybody's career because I still remember like. If anybody asks, hey, what's the highlight of your career, and you hit 600 home runs, you will say uh, that 2011 World Series. That I mean, every day that, right? Like when you wear a ring for a reason, you wear, uh, you know, like that, it's a, it's a trophy. And I have two trophies and it's just um, the, the days I'll never forget. And that's kind of what you preach. We have championship players on our team that have been there that uh, Eric Hosmer, who has won it has gold gloves and silver sluggers. You know what he talks about? He talks about winning the world series. Right. Uh, So that's, that's kind of what I take away from it. 
Well, during your time in St. Louis, you know, we were talking about Joey Votto, talking about other players, but during your time in St. Louis, you were hitting 300 or very close to 300 very consistently, and uh, your strikeout ratio was at a, a 13%. I mean, that is incredibly low. I mean, guys are now striking out at 25, 30, or 35% clip. I mean, it's unreal. So you were at a 13% strikeout rate, which is unbelievable. So I just wanted to ask you, what, what factors or elements or what was the it factor for you that allowed you to maintain or contribute to that kind of success that you had? Yeah, I think a couple of things. Um, I was surrounded by a bunch of really good players. So I'm assuming that pitching staff was I trying to figure out how to get Albert out and Lance Berkman out and, and not skip Schumacher. So probably, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, Tony, you know, putting me in situations and most players in situations, I got to watch Albert go about his business and what he did. But I also think in today's game, you have to identify who you are as a player. I knew as a player that I had to get on base for number five, Albert in front of me, right? That was the goal. I wasn't going to hit home runs. This whole like launch angle revolution thing that's going on is, and it's going to allow you to strike out more. That's just the reality of it. I believed in the power of putting a ball in play, like make the defense play the game. I just think there's value in putting the ball in play. Now, having said that, the 13% you know, rate and all that stuff, it, um, I never really thought of that when I, was, when I was hitting. I also didn't have like every pitcher nowadays is throwing 95 to 100. That's a big difference, right? Like all these, like I see high school kids are throwing 95 miles an hour now. When I was in high school, at 88, I was like, oh my gosh, that's like 108. Um, so like it's, it's also different. So it's tougher to hit. But I think that the, you have, identifying who you are as a player means the most. And I think I had a pretty good idea of who I was. Yeah, that's amazing, Skip, because of the people that we interview, the ones that you feel have a, have a sense of themselves, they are comfortable in their skin, they know their capabilities, and not in a, in a cocky way, but in a, in a in a confident way. They know who they are. They know their abilities. You know, it's really funny. One thing that's a recurring theme is there's always like the player, sometimes their perceived abilities are at a lower level than like the coach looks at them, right? And they're, sometimes even their perceived abilities is, is lower than the reality of what their abilities are. And so I don't know if that's a good thing uh, or a bad thing. I, I would tend to think it's a good thing because it keeps you hungry, you know, in, in trying to always better yourself. But it, it seems as though it, it keeps that person humble. But again, you seem as a player and now as a, as a manager, associate manager, lumping you all in the same category, that when you, you, have to, you have to exude confidence in who you are because that's part of the ability to get the people under you to trust you. Because if there's no trust, we don't care where you've been and what success you've had. If they don't trust you, you cannot be an effective leader, correct? Yeah, well, yeah. First of all, you have to remember how hard this game is, right? So I will never, ever expect a player to do something that I don't think they can do. And I would never expect a player to do something that I knew was impossible because it's so hard to do, right? Oh, just why don't you just hit it the other way? Well, uh, the ball is moving. <laughs> yeah, do it. 
so I, I think that uh, how you react in you know tough situations, uh, it's just like a kid. So like a kid, like my daughter plays soccer. If she's you know kicks the ball and she kicks it out of bounds, like what she's going to look at dad or a coach and how how am I going to react? And right. if I'm like, dude, what the you know what are you doing? Uh, then what's how what's her get, reaction going to be right so i always believed in the ero this is an urban meyer thing it's event reaction outcome so there's an event there's a reaction and then your outcome so you have to be very careful on how you react for yeah. your outcome to the player might be like dude screw that guy like he obviously forgot how hard this is and he's not all in it with me so you just have to remember you know as a coach that i'm not going to ask you to do anything that i don't believe you can do and i believe in you and the other side of it is, if it doesn't go right, I still, I still got you. We're still in this thing together. And I think that's a big, big thing when you uh, start your coaching career. So talking about being uncomfortable, there were like two or three instances in your playing days where, where you had to pitch. So <laughs> let me ask you, like, I, I, I just want to give you a, a quick story before that. So I remember, I mean, we're from New York, so kind of like we grew up, I grew up in Queens and always been sort of like a Mets fan. And I remember there was one game, I don't remember which year, but they went up to like 22 innings, right? And so at that point, you know, whoever player probably they were asking like, did any of you pitch in high school or ever like, yeah, I did once. Okay, you go and pitch now, right? (laughs) And what was really funny about that is, is that, the guys who probably never pitched. So they're throwing the ball like, like maybe, a, you know, 30 miles an hour, right? And just trying to get the ball over the plate. But I, you know what I discovered was the players had so much difficulty because here you guys are, right? You're anticipating, you're always anticipating high-speed pitches and movement and this and that. And all of a sudden you're faced with like a 40-mile and everybody's striking out. It's like, it's almost, it's embarrassing. You know, the pitcher feels like he's embarrassed to pitch, but it's even more embarrassing for the hitters because they're striking out. So first of all, how was that? How is that situation for you? Because I, I understand like in 2013, you pitched like two scoreless innings with the Dodgers. And so like, what was that feeling when you're like, you got to go and pitch now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, it's never a good thing when a position player has to pitch. Right. <laughs> you know, as a hitter, I've been in those situations. It's a lose-lose situation, right? You're supposed to get a hit. And if you don't, then you're like, oh my God, the last thing you remember when you drive home is like, how did I not just get a, a hit on? <laughs> so it's awful. So you don't want the at bat, honestly, quite like I do not want this at bat. Nobody wants this at bat because, you know, the game's already over. It's out of hand. And so anyway, so I, I pitched um, in college, I pitched in high school and they knew actually when I was in minor leagues, my first year I hit 250 and my farm director said, if you do not hit next year, we're thinking about putting you on the mound. So the, I, I had some pitching background, but at five foot 10, 190, it probably wasn't too sustainable or really good for my career. So um, I knew that I better start hitting or I'm going to be out of the game. I'm not going to be a pitcher. So I had a little bit of pitching background um, and I wasn't very good at it, but I had a good arm. And so that's kind of why Tony, I pitched in, um, you know, it, with the St. Louis Cardinals, the Reds and the Dodgers. And um, it's just, it's not a good, it's not a good situation because 
there's no fans in the stands. You're getting your ass kicked. Everyone's drunk in the stands, yelling at every, you know, everything. <laughs> and get the hell out of there. But was it at least fun that day? Those two days was it at least fun for you? Yeah, I mean, I grew up going to Dodger Stadium, so pitching on the mound uh, where Oral was. I wore 55 because of Oral Hershiser. So yes, I mean, there's a lot of like sentimental value. Um, but after the first pitch, I'm like, I'm good. You know, that's yeah, going now. Yeah. Hey, so talking about Oral Hershiser, um, can you tell us that story about when you were five years old, you saw him and Tommy Lasorda in a restaurant? Yeah, so to- uh, so different times. I saw Tommy at like kind of like a flea market open area type of place. Everybody was asking for autographs. At the time, my parents had a Polaroid camera. So we asked to take a picture. He was kind and gracious enough to, to not only take a picture, but take the time to talk to me. He wow. autographed. Polaroid, it says to Jared, uh, <laughs> to a future Dodger, Tommy Lasorda. Uh, and I'm being Dodger and I have that in my, you know, my man cave or whatever back home, which is a pretty special photo uh, when I was about seven or eight years old. The, the Oral Hershiser one is he was at a restaurant playing pinball and I was eating dinner with my dad and he was with another player. I'm not going to mention his name because I'll tell you why later. But the my dad, I really wanted his, I had the Oral Hershiser signature glove and him and Ozzy Smith were the two gloves I wore, but I really wanted to get his autograph. So my dad's like, wait till he's done the game, go ahead and ask him. So I walked up and I said, you know, Oral, wait. and he said, yes, he picked up, picked me up, you know, I had my glove on same thing to a future Dodger or Hershiser. And then I asked the other guy and he told me get the F out of here. <laughs> wow. So, uh, wow. I, that other player, ended up being a first base coach for a team in 2013. So 2013. Yeah. I tell my story to this first baseman and in the stretch line, the following day, he's like, Hey, skip come over here. I want you to introduce you to your childhood hero. And, and, you know, so it was kind of some back and forth. And I just said, you know, you know, I remember that he goes, I would never say that. I said, listen, I wouldn't make that up. Um, But, and, but I remember that as a player, because any kid that is outside the stadium, if they want autograph, because of what happened to me, it's uh, I'm on it. So you know what? That's, That's amazing. Awesome. What an amazing character! Because you understood. You know, obviously, you know your your time demands. You know, you like like you said, you can't be you know uh, on the sh- on the corner. You know, signing autographs forever. But as a kid, when someone like that, like you, idolize or whatever, and they come around and they and and they 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 tell you that it's like you feel like how shitty that makes you feel. And so, but in a way that was great because like you understand that feeling. And when Tommy Lasorda did that for you and he wrote, I mean, like that almost like that sealed your fate, right? It almost like sealed your fate at a young age. And so, you know, a lot of times we often forget, you know, where our roots and where we come. And I remember, you know, Peter, as a youngster, was always very, very, very good in baseball. At 12 years old, he gets um, diagnosed with a rare form of childhood cancer. And so uh, throughout his chemo, the only thing that he could think about was like, dad, I can't, he, and he was diagnosed in December of 2006. And he's like, dad, I need to get back on the field playing. You know, I have to get for spring training. I got to be on the field. And so in 2007, you know, fate would have it 
that Paul LaDuca was on the Mets in 2006 and 2007. So the Make-A-Wish Foundation had come and asked Peter what his wish was. And since Peter was a, a catcher as well, Peter was like, you know, um, I, I, I want to I, I meet Paul LaDuca and I want to catch I want to catch the first, I want, I want to catch the first pitch and I want him to pitch it to me. And so they weren't sure if they could do that. And they're like, well, you have anything else? I'm like, no, there's nothing else <laughs> I want. And so when we met him, you know, obviously the circumstances, but he was genuinely gracious. And so, you know, that thing like that, you, re, you know, Peter remembers his whole life. And so, especially when you're young, that sticks with you. And so it just reminds you that, we're all human and that, you know, sometimes very small acts of kindness can make a huge difference for that, for that kid. Right. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, you, you, I was very lucky to be given a platform. Uh, Oral had a platform. Paula Duca had a platform and how are you going to use it? And, um, it, you know, I'm with the, the Jesse Reese foundation right now, which is a childhood cancer foundation. It's called Nigu. It's never, ever give up. And so right. I can, I, I understand, uh, you know, what you all went through. I don't have a kid that went through it, so I don't want to say it like that, but we go to hospitals all the time. Right. So we see what, what goes on, and it's it's a very trying, tough time. And so I can, I can only imagine what you went through, but we have those kids come to the stadium. And that's how I met Eric Reese, whose daughter, Jesse, at Dodger Stadium. That's how I met him, and, and here we are eight years later and I'm still with the foundation. So I, I can, I totally get it. And it's, it's nice to hear that, you know, Paula Duca was so gracious with this time because it's not easy. You know, you, you're asked a lot um, as a player to do certain things and functions and autographs. And can you do this? Can you do that? Right. And oh, by the way, you have to win tonight and catch a big league ball game. <laughs> it's not always right. Cause your, right. your job, every single night you can embarrass your family and not top 10 like I did about 15 times uh, on Sports Center, and so you're you're kind of pulled in a lot of different directions but it's really good to hear stories like that uh, because that's the most meaningful stuff at the end of the day right it's like how can you impact people oh and, my god and it yeah, was such a magical absolutely. night because Peter he wrote a letter to Paul LaDuca Paul's mom died of, of cancer and, you know, the story with Paul was is that when he was a young kid, his mother would throw him little, give him a, a broomstick and throw him pinto beans. And she would say to him, if you could hit these pinto beans with that broomstick, you're going to be able to hit a baseball. So Peter wrote him a letter and put a little pinto bean in, in the letter, you know, wishing him luck for, for that night. And it was really funny when we got to the, the park, uh, during, you know, during the batting practice, uh, the woman that was, you know, taking us around, she said, you know, Paul right now is struggling with the bat. And so he, he's taking BP inside, uh, inside rather than outside. And so we said, no problem. And so, you know, when he came out, obviously, you know, we spent some time with Peter and yada, yada. And that night, the, the game, it was in July, it was a game against the Phillies, right, Peter? Cole Hamill's was uh, pitching, and that night was the first night they had a a back to back to back home run. Who were they? Uh, Peter was. I think it was Carlos Delgado, David Wright, and then Paul Duca. And Paul Duca, they had back to back to back home runs. So I mean, it was just you know, it was one of those magical 
times. And, you know, and, and for me, it was like, you just never know the circumstances. Like, how is it that the time that Peter got cancer, Paul Aduka was playing on, you know, on the Mets. And so how, how appropriate and novel that, you know, and how opportune that was, but in any event, everybody's journey is different. And uh, so Skip, you've had an, and I mean, you've had a more than respectable career as a player and you probably would say, I don't know if there's anything else you would want to do in life than, than being baseball. I mean, apart from your family, but there's nothing that drives you more than this particular game, right? Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's what I know. I feel like it's what I'm kind of only good at, but there is a, a sacrifice not seeing the family, right? I mean, I'm here eight weeks in Arizona without seeing my family. I'll be on the road. I'll be in New York uh, this year without seeing my family on two week road trips. So you miss out on a lot. Uh, I don't think that I'll be able to miss out on my kids when they're in high school. Um, if they're playing sport, um, that's coming up here shortly. And uh, so we'll see where the, my career you know, ends up on the coaching side. I've been very lucky to be able to grow up in Southern California and then be offered a job in Southern California after All my right. playing. Not too many people are lucky enough to sleep in their own bed during the season. Um, I am. So I don't take that for granted. The GM in the front office has been nothing but fantastic to me. Um, so we'll see what happens. I mean, my dream has always been to play in the major leagues. And I got to do that. And so my, my son's 13 and my daughter's 11. And I, I also want to see them, you know, what their dreams are all about and, and not miss on, on uh, some right of these times. wife as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you mentioned before you've appeared a couple of times on the Sports Center, not top 10. When you have a player now as a coach who's going through something like that, what kind of advice do you give them looking back on your experiences of like, all right, you know, it, just pick it up. It's okay. Like, even if you're going viral on the internet, you're going to have a hundred more games to do something about it. Yeah. It, it goes back to the preparation, right? I could sleep at night because I knew I prepared as much as I could. And then I made the air, right? Like I did everything I possibly could pregame leading up to the game, video work. Was I shifted? Was I in the right position? All of that ball got in the lights. I couldn't see it. Hits me in the head like that didn't happen, but like that is a possibility. So if that happens and it goes viral, it's like, okay, you know, get a couple texts from your friends and they're crushing you, your mom and your wife's like, Oh my gosh, your son's like, I'm not watching sports center. I can't go to school. That stuff's, <laughs> but yeah, the other part of it uh, is like, you know, it's part of, part of the entertain it's entertainment, right? Like you guys go to watch games, you watch to see like guys do really good and you might see something messed up. And, you know, a couple of times I messed up, but I, if there's players that are going through like some funks and some slump, you also know that you've been through that as a player, you can help navigate through his, you know, slumps. If there's not top 10 situations, you kind of make fun of them a little bit to like, like give him a little bit of a deep breath. Like, Oh, you went through that too. Yes. It's cool, dude. I saw it and I watched it again over and over again. And it's hilarious, but you can only get mad at yourself or the player if they weren't prepared. That's the only thing that I would get, be upset by. And um, you know, if I couldn't look at myself in the mirror of like, dude, I went out way too late last night and then I kicked that ball. Then I'd be like, I would never forgive myself. Um, right. So they're different. And if that's the same thing with the player uh, as a coach. 
Unreal, unreal. All right, Skip, you know, we didn't even realize, but so much so much time flew by, but we had such a great conversation. We had so much fun talking to you. We really had a blast. So we're just going to wrap it up, some rapid fire, if you're cool with it, with a couple of rapid fire questions off the top of your head. Who's your idol growing up? Other than my my parents, um, I would say Ozzy Smith um, and, well, I had three. So again, can I give you three? You can yeah. give me three, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> I'm going to give you four. Ozzy Smith, Oral, I loved Big Mac. So I, I would have, like, all I wanted for Christmas was the rated rookie or the USA baseball wow. card. Like, that's the only thing I wanted for Christmas. I got it. And then at the time, like, I know everybody just saw the last dance, but Michael Jordan was like, I only wear Jordans. I still wear Jordans on the field. Um, pre-game, whatever, like, I'm wearing Jordans. And um, I just felt like that, you know, that Mamba mentality was already there before, you know, and it, it was just uh, – so. Anyway, those are my four. Nice, nice. What was your favorite baseball movie growing up or currently? Uh, the Natural or Major League. The Natural was awesome, a little bit different uh, script than Major League. But if Major League is on right now, man, I just like it's. I know what's coming and I still laugh and I just love it. It's just a genius script. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. Uh, your favorite musical artist? So I have two. All right. So I have Green Day. I love Green Day. Oh, wow, big yeah. Green Day. And I actually like Disturbed. So um, the Sound of Silence. I don't know if you heard that song by Disturbed that just came out. Uh, I don't know how long ago it was now, but um, but I'm, the, the guy's voice is, is just ridiculous. And uh, so big fan of those two. What was your favorite walk-up song that you had throughout your, your career? So I had Chillin' on a Dirt Road by Jason Aldean when it first came out. Um, so I, my, my wife is a big country artist, uh, music fan. I, I love country too. Um, but Chillin' on a Dirt Road was, was a pretty cool song at the time. Nice. Chipotle or Freebirds? Whoa. So <laughs> Freebirds was uh, the restaurant right next to my dorm in college. Oh, uh, nice. Frequented quite often. Uh, it didn't really feel great the next morning, Freebird. So, Chipotle. <laughs> Chipotle. This is some fresher ingredients. Absolutely. Yes. I think. <laughs> Would you go with In and Out, In and Out, or Shake Shack? It's In and Out. And uh, I mean, I'm biased, man. I'm a California boy. And uh, it's like all over the place. And I just, the Shake Shack, people are trying to convince me for years that it's better. Um, I, <laughs> Can't go the other side. That's the dark side to me. <laughs> I think the, the fries you have to at least admit are better at Shake Shack. I, it, I just told you, In and Out is. <laughs> That's it. That's it. That's it. Not even entertaining this discussion. Nope. nope. <laughs> yeah, yeah, California. Absolutely, you have to defend right. In and Out to the death. Right. That's part of it. That's right. <laughs> so I'm from Boston, so we have to justify like having a Dunkin' Donuts on every other corner <laughs> in the same way. Right. So I get it. I get it. I totally get it. <laughs> Do pineapples belong on pizza? No, absolutely not. No. Yeah. Uh, I had a pepperoni jalapeno pizza yesterday and it was fantastic for some I've had it. So the pineapple deal is no, absolutely not. So in another life, this is the last question. In another yep. life that you're not a baseball player, it's just a hypothetical, you execute a successful heist and walk away with $50 million. Where's the first place you go? um so my stress reliever always was the beach 
I, I surf. I loved it. It was my, my break away from reality. So I would purchase something on the water um, where I could just de- decompress and um, not think about anything, but, but just kind of watching the waves roll in. Peter, he's buying real estate. So that's pretty smart. That's and it's pretty smart. <laughs> and what a fun property <laughs> to boot. That's right. I need $50 million for it in California, so I probably spent all of it. <laughs> Uh, that's awesome. Well, Skip, thank you so much for joining us today and talking baseball. We had an absolute blast. Best of luck to you in this upcoming season with the Padres. And, you know, we hope to have you again for another conversation at some point, maybe after yeah. you guys celebrate your World Series. Yeah, a deal. If we do that, we're in. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, guys. Thank, thank you, Skip. So All right, guys. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care, man. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Bats Left Throws Right podcast. I've been your host, Jack Almer, along with Sal LaDuca and Peter LaDuca. We had a great time with you here today. Just as a reminder to please follow us on Twitter at BLTR Podcast and on Facebook and Instagram at Bats Left Throws Right. Tune in through Spotify, Google Podcasts, or Apple Podcasts. And please be sure after this interview to rate, subscribe, and review. Thank you again for tuning in.